You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have both been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They've experienced all the difficult emotions, the guilt, the anger, the fear, the shame, the exasperating arguments, highs and lows, crises and relapses. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. They have shepherded their loved ones toward treatment. Their sons are both in recovery today. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies in Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Um, hi, uh, my name is Larry McDougall, um, and this is our first night with our um, podcast um, coming up for air. Um, and uh, I'd like to introduce Annie Highwater. Hi, Annie. Hello. Hello. Happy to be here. I love our name coming up for air. I think that's perfect. Okay, so I guess our um, our first podcast we're going to focus on our um, personal stories. Um, so I was hoping, uh, Annie, you might um, start us out. Okay, yeah, sure. I'll just get right to it. Um, a lot of it's detailed in the book I have out um, called Unhooked. And the book is, interestingly enough, um, it's subtitled A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction. But if you read it, you will see that there is a kind of a twist of a thread throughout the story of family dysfunction and pathology and this tumultuous somewhat adversarial relationship I have with my mother, who in the book, I don't so much come out and call the issues addiction with her, although that is pretty much where it started. Um, I was born into crisis, basically, the youngest of six kids. My parents' home had burnt down, and when my mom was eight months pregnant with me, her baby number six, they moved in with her parents, and there was a lot of conflict. It was a really small house, and I was brought home to that. By virtue of just the craziness and the chaos and everyone struggling to make it and get along. I didn't walk until I was a year old because they kept me in a playpen um, until the day we moved. And then I walked. So nobody really ever knew, you know, when I was developing, I, I kind of got lost in the shuffle. There were five siblings above me and it was constant trouble and chaos. And, and my parents never really got their footing with parenting. My mom had some uh, mental health issues. Some uh, back in those days, it was called, I guess, nervous breakdown. So she would be ill and um, bedridden and medicated. And um, what I didn't understand was that before I was born, there was a lot of family dysfunction of alcoholism and abuse. A lot of that had stopped when my father got sober before I was born. But my older siblings were kind of left in the wake of that. So I was born into all of these after effects and had no idea what all of this misery was. I just came along right into it. And when you grow up in that kind of environment, you can't, you just realize, I don't know what this, all of this negativity and misery is. I just know every room I walk into is unhappy. It was, a, it was kind of an um, atmosphere of downtrodden, so to speak, where there's just really no thought of 
having a good life or even being educated, you're living from crisis to crisis. So that's what I was born into, poverty. Um, we were on welfare and food stamps. I came home from school often with utilities shut off and somebody else watching us when my mom was bedridden again with an episode and they just never really got their footing. And I, none of it was explained to me. And I was sick all the time. Um, they entered into some religious dysfunction as well, where they would not see, they would get the phases and they didn't seek medical treatment. And I lost the hearing in one of my ears because I was prayed over versus taking me for medical care all the way through. And I know, you know, there's issues of faith that you can turn to first, but you, you kind of don't believe in medical care, give any credit to medical care. That's really not wise as far as faith goes. So anyway, that's what I was born into. And it really set me up for failure. And um, I was just left alone to kind of figure it out pretty feral. A teacher took an interest in me when I was in school and kind of taught me to write and set me on my way. But I was just so neglected and not cared for that um, I never really got grounding. So I went all the way through my teen years like that. My mother seemed to recover from a lot of these episodes, but she entered into full-blown addiction when I was in middle school after she'd been in a head-on collision, a pretty bad one, and had been in a wheelchair for a while, was given pain medication and never stopped taking it. So she switched all of her nervous problems and other medications for like a devotion to painkillers, so to speak. And that led me right into my teen years. That kind of led to some dysfunction and embarrassment and sanity. It just, we, it just always happened. It just seemed like it was always occurring. There was always something going on. Um, I would have my teachers at school would be called and told that the world was going to end. And what could they have conversations with me and ask me to repent and things like that just went on all the time. So I was always struggling with it. Couldn't really connect with anybody um, except for my best friend. And I came all the way up through that. So I began to spend time in the library and study behavioral health and issues of recovery and sanity just because I was miserable and I despised my life and I had no guidance. So I didn't want to be like that or, you know, walk in those ways, which that led me on to, I ended up married young. I had a child my last year of high school um, and just trying to stabilize. I married his dad. We tried to make it work for about nine years. Um, just chaos to chaos to chaos. I, you pretty much repeat the pattern. Um, I was born into chaos and crisis and I continued it on through most of my life until I got into my 20s. And then just out of sheer devotion to not wanting my son to be neglected or uncared for or confused all the time, I just started trying to figure out, I, I guess I read my way to a better life of how to parent him better. So I worked, I just kind of wore myself out. I would work two jobs and put him in private school and then spend my time in the library studying how to be a mom and I would read biographies of families that seemed normal, thinking I'd pick up their best practices. And I, I tried to, to kind of navigate and turn the ship around for him that way. Um, and then life did stabilize. His dad and I ended up getting divorced. And it was pretty, you know, it's, it's always awkward when you go through that. But we, we really brought it back to a place of peace and unity, you know, and spent a lot of games and um, holidays and stuff together. So we didn't, everything stabilized and got peaceful. So that said... I spent all of these years trying to study, I guess, being functional and whole and well so that I wouldn't be addicted or I wouldn't live a life of poverty and defeat and failure. So I was pretty much spoon fed a lifestyle of addiction and poverty and didn't pursue it. Um, in, the, in the meantime, I really brought my son up knowing what addiction and dysfunction was and thinking that would safeguard him. I was setting this insurance policy in place that having seen it and explained it and taught it to him, he would never pursue the misery of it. So I put him in private school and I would attend every school function and ball game and practice because I didn't want him to end up like that. 
Um, I hear a lot of parents say, we had no idea this was going on. Maybe if I would have known, well, I did know it was a possibility and I tried to safeguard against it and we ended up there anyway. By the same token, I was um, pretty much taught that addiction was a way of life and I didn't walk in it myself. So you can't really ever predict it. Um, So my son went to private school. He was classically trained on piano. He was great at sports, full of personality, just as kind and mannered, well-mannered and charismatic as could be. And then when he was about, I think he was 17 years old, junior year in high school, he'd had a jaw injury in football and a surgeon prescribed Percocets, narcotic Percocets. Just a few months later, he had dental work done and he was prescribed Vicodin and we were pretty well off to the races with opiate dependency. And it was up and down and back and forth for about five years. Alongside that, my mother, she's kind of literally like the church lady from Saturday Night Live. And she's aware that I talk about this and I've written about this. She's read my book and everything. I don't do this to shame her. I just want to open up that fourth wall to say this is what addiction and dysfunction does to ravage a family and a person. So she came alongside during the years that my son struggled with addiction and became kind of an adversary to wellness and would sneak um, pills to him and money to him and cover for him and hide it from me. And so I bat- as much as I was battling for his life and I truly believed I was going to save his life by doing all the you know if, if intervention television show processes of handling this right, I truly believe I'd save his life, but I was fighting her as well to keep her out of our business and to stop interfering and to stop taking him in and to stop. She would say, I don't want him to have withdrawal. So I'm going to get an extra prescription and give it to him myself. And I mean, it was a, I was fighting two losing battles at the same time, because even if she hadn't been in the picture, my processes of being this Aaron Brockovich that was chasing him down and following him into people's houses and staying on top of everything to a point it was maybe navigating him toward consequences and recovery, but I wasn't ending it. He was just getting better at hiding it and getting it and doing it. And so it was madness. And we went through a lot of years of dysfunction and trying to stabilize anyway. And then it just exploded when the addiction happened. And it was a lot of years of misery trying to come through that. And family, you know, patterns exposed their ugly heads in the midst of that. My son was back and forth and it was a learning curve. He was at my house and at his dad's and we would come together and have meeting of the minds. And I would meet with doctors and pharmacists and people I knew that were addicted or former addicted people and families. And I was just filled journals with studies and this person did this and it worked. And what does this medication do when they rub off the extended uh, coating on it so that they can get the effects quicker? And I became this kind of encyclopedia of how to handle this kid. And eventually it got to a point where it just kept getting worse. The conflict got worse. He got worse. He looked worse. His health got worse. Everything got worse. And nothing I was doing was making a difference anymore. So I went out of town and uh, he had been sleeping in a dugout for a few nights. And at first I was checking with binoculars and doing all of those things. And he always managed to have a cell phone. And so we stayed in contact. But then I went out of town on purpose and said, I can't do this with you anymore. I will always offer you a plan into treatment. I will never turn my back on you, but I will offer you nothing else. You are in a pit and I will not climb in it with you. I will not hang pictures for you. I want it to be as miserable as possible. So you hate your life more than I hate your life. But since you don't, I have to just walk away from this. I went out of town and he really got fed up and had nowhere to turn. I'd kind of threatened my mom. If you take him in, I'm going to, we're going to have, we're going to come to blows. And I, everyone else had cut him off as well. And he 
on his own, took what he had left and booked a flight to California and went into treatment. And he has been there ever since. And that, that has been a process of recovery and awakening for me as well, because he went away. And then they always say, you know, uh, get him out of town, get him away from all of it. And that's how they'll recover. Yeah. But, I, but there's that quote, wherever you go, there you are, because he relapsed once he got out there. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking, but I thought I had done everything right. I've been these rails. I've been this not enabling. I've gone yeah. by the book and he relapsed anyway. So then it was an awakening toward me. I'm so PTSD right now that it's made me so climb the walls crazy all this time. But not only that, I didn't affect him even out there. And I really am powerless when he's out there. But maybe I need to recover. So that kind of woke me up too. that. I need to do the work, too do my own recovery because I was so not enabling, but codependent and at the mercy of his well-being. I mean, at the mercy of it. If I would have lunch with my sister, I would have a tornado in my mind. What's he doing? What's going on? What can I do? What's my next steps? I was never free of it. And when he got out there and started doing the work on his own, that's when I was like, I'm actually existing alongside all of this. Mm -hmm. And I haven't even thought about myself. So I'm crazy. I'm as sick as he is, maybe sicker because I'm doing some crazy things and I'm not high. So I began the work of my own recovery since then. And we've been kind of parallel adjacent ever since. And I absolutely stopped paying attention to his sobriety date because I don't even want to know. I was so dependent on that for so many years. I don't even want to know if you're doing well. God bless you. Our relationship's fine. I'm doing my own thing now. Right. And that is what I believe brought me to this point where I met you. Right. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <Any> uh, questions? <laughs> well, I can I uh, I can say I read your book, um, <clears throat> and I love um, that you are not in the book. You are really not focused on your son's uh, struggles with addiction. Yes, that's in there because that is a part of your life. But what I really love about the book is. You're, um, you're analyzing of, of things that you've been through in order to try and understand why you're feeling the way you're feeling and why it's so important that you get better um, and that you're not really, because we read a lot of the time um, on this issue and really we read more about one, how to recover and two, we, we hear about um, the addiction part of it more than anything. And um, when I read your book, it just struck me how this was focused on, okay, why do I, why am I so crazy at this moment? Right. And where is this all coming from? And it's your journey of how you got better. Um, which doesn't mean to minimize that. I'm really happy that your son is in recovery and he's in recovery for as long as he's been in. Um, But the focus of the book is, is you. And I think that that's great. Right. Well, yeah, I definitely wanted to make it about my own journey. And I, and like I said, I didn't want to shame anybody and I didn't open it up to where it would be. It's more of a triumph and I didn't want it to be, I'm not looking to stay injured. Right. There are people that like to be injured and they look for the misery and I'm not always, even when I was little and I was trying to navigate forward those profoundly challenging dynamics, I didn't want to stay injured. I didn't want to feel sorry for me or use anything as an excuse to, you know, be rude or be a failure or not try. I was always trying to find the triumph. So that's what I tried to do. Even when his addiction hit, because I was so triumph minded, 
I thought, how am I going to, this, this is what we're dealing with. This is this monster in our home. How am I going to face this with triumph and see the outcome as, as the best possible outcome? It's going to have to grow something and develop something me in the meantime. And I certainly didn't have that. Oh, I'm Rocky Balboa constantly in the midst of it because you're melting down a lot of the time or driving and checking on things or trying to focus at work while your phone's going off and you're crazy. But I definitely, I think it's so important to come out of the sickness and not to have a victim mentality. Right. Meltdown, I'm fragile, I'm post-traumatic stress, you know, whatever the case may be, but finding your way forward, I believe, is is the path of recovery. Right, right, right. And I I totally agree with you. I I have found for myself that I I do allow myself days of, um, okay, today I'm a victim for maybe, maybe a small amount of time, you know, um, I, you know, 15 minutes today, I'm going to feel really sorry for myself, but not for the rest of the day. Right. Or um, I just hate everybody right now. I hate yeah. everybody that does it easy. Sometimes yeah. I would have those kind of days. Yeah. But I always know, I always know that I will not stay there. I will right. not stay in that state. It's um, fluid. Yeah. But, um, I guess also, I mean, just, just a little bit of my story, which is really similar. It's similar. I mean, we have, we definitely have different paths, but, um, a lot of the themes are the same. And, um, I grew up, um, in a small family. Um, we weren't wealthy, but we also weren't poor. Uh, my parents did get divorced and my mother had custody of us. And although I didn't grow up with a ton of addiction or alcoholism, um, there was some of it. Um, I did have a mother that suffered from bipolar uh, mental illness. And that was a huge impact on my life. Um, she, you know, she she treated me in ways that... Um, that are kind of odd and kind of strange. You know, she, um, I did things as a child, like I would call, uh, call my own babysitters, uh, to come and babysit me when she was going out with a boyfriend or, um, I'm just trying to think I, I really became the mother figure for my, for my younger brother. Um, and it was just the two of us in the house. Um, eventually I went to visit my father. He had remarried. And, um, while we were away, my mother committed suicide. I lost her when I was nine and my brother was seven. Um, and, uh, we were in Florida visiting my mother and his new wife. And so, um, the whole dynamic of everything changed. And now I had a stepmother and a father and I was living in Florida. Um, that relationship, the relationship between my stepmother and, uh, and myself was not a good one. Um, it was also very tumultuous, um, very, uh, chaotic. Um, I never knew where I stood. I felt like I, um, I couldn't please her no matter what I did. I was, um, damned if I did, damned if I didn't. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of some of the other things. Um, Either way, either way, uh, living with her was was really, really difficult. And I think I told you about this earlier, Annie, didn't I? That um, she she would just come up with restrictions in the house that were just 
like I was not allowed inside of the house alone. And we're talking when I was like 16 or 17 years old. Um, and I had to, um, like in the dead of winter, I would show up at home after school and, uh, the doors would be locked. My mother wouldn't be there and I couldn't go inside and I would have to sit outside in the freezing cold waiting for her to come home. And we're talking, we're not talking, you know, we're talking in a, a, close to adulthood. Um, and then if I was late, I was grounded for, for weeks on end. And, you know, I mean, I know it sounds like trivial things, but at the time it was very confusing um, and very difficult to deal with. Um, then uh, I met my husband. Um, I didn't, I also did not get through college at that point. I tried. Um, I had a series of running away from home as well as getting kicked out of the house a couple of times, but eventually, um, I met my husband. Um, I also got pregnant with our first child. We got married. Uh, so I married my husband at, I was 20 and 21 when I had my first, um, child, then my son, uh, came along and then I had another daughter. So by the time I was 25, I had three children. Um, and my husband and I proceeded to move across the country, multiple moves. And so, um, as a family, as a young new family, we were alone and I was really left, um, kind of on my own to figure out this whole mothering thing. And I started to notice pretty early on, I, I I'd say almost from the time my son was born that something, something wasn't quite right. Um, he cried just all the time. Um, it was so bad that I had a direct line to his pediatrician and I could literally call them and they'd be, you know, they were kind of like a, a hotline for me. And they were like, okay, so he's crying. He won't stop crying. You know, okay, what can you do? Why don't you go into the bathroom? Just take a couple of deep breaths. Um, because it, I knew something was wrong with him. I just, I just didn't know what it was. And, um, I couldn't find ways to soothe him or to help him. Um, and so over time he, he suffered with, um, what do they call them? Night terrors. Have you ever heard of night terrors? Mm -hmm. They're different than nightmares. Um, and he would have them like four or five times a night, every night. He had them for years. In fact, he had them, he had night terrors uh, into his teenage years. Um, uh, and then we started to, I, I'd say right around the age of about six or seven years old, it was like, okay, something's really wrong here. I, I, he's still throwing temper tantrums. Um, I couldn't say the word no to him. If I did, it was a meltdown for hours and hours. Um, and we started to really see um, some child psychologists. And um, of course, he was also diagnosed with all sorts of stuff. I mean, we never quite got the diagnosis of bipolar until he was about 20 years old. Um, but previous to that, it was severe depression, it was anxiety, then it would be back to depression, then maybe he's bipolar. I mean, it was just back and forth and back and forth. Um, but as a mother, uh, which I think this now is where you and I kind of have some similarities, because as a mother, um, I believed that um, I could 
<laughs> I believed that I could love him so much that I could love him out of this, that if I could read every book on parenting, if I could watch every video, if I could talk to doctors and just get the right way, I would be able to do everything perfectly and I'd be able to save him from this mental illness. And um, I'd be able to, uh, to just really, really love him. And that would be the answer. Um, I unfortunately didn't have the foresight. I, I was a lot more naive, I think, than you were with the, with the addiction issue. Um, looking back on it now, it kind of makes sense as to why he might fall into that um, uh, because of his mental illness. And he uh, has an incredibly low self-esteem. So, so when that happened, when the addiction happened with us, that was a surprise for me. It was a huge surprise. But I can also say that having dealt with his bipolar for so many years before helped me deal with the addiction part of it. Because with the bipolar, um, I started to realize that uh, it, just a couple of things that um, I couldn't I couldn't control it for him. I couldn't cure him of it that he had to learn. And I had to find ways of letting him know that he had to be the one to deal with this. Um, and I also uh, realized that it really was a, a disease. It really was something that he wasn't doing to be you know, belligerent or manipulative or, you know, that this was really a disease. I think that's why, like, when it comes to stigma and you talk about mental illness related to uh, stigma related to mental illness, stigma related to addiction, I'm kind of like beyond it now. I'm like, I, you know, I, I just, I know it's a disease. I know it's nothing that they can, um, that they can really control, at least not without help, at least not without coping strategies, in some cases, medication. Um, so, so I think that you and I, Annie, have similarities. My might have been dealing with bipolar and yours might have been dealing with addiction to start, um, but that we kind of arrived at similar conclusions and did it in similar ways through education and reading and um, trying to be the best mom that we possibly could be. Right. Um, I think the misery of the situation becomes so big and paramount. It kind of trumps the concern about stigma because you move past that eventually and the quicker, the better. Yeah, I agree. What were your feelings when you, when you were first hit with this, that your son uh, might be struggling with addiction? Um, I had known things were wrong, like going wrong. And the, the sign of it for me is conflict because he's easy to get along with. And we had an atmosphere of peace. It wasn't a home that had loud arguing or, you know, there wasn't booze in the fridge. I didn't have men in the house. And it, it was, a, I on purpose created this peaceful, stable environment for him where it was quiet and calm and structured and everything that I didn't have. So when conflict became so explosive over things that didn't merit explosion, that's when you know something's wrong. And I had known that this prescription was kind of hovering over us in a possibility. And then um, when all of that became obvious of what it was, I was so angry with my mom. That, that was kind of like the big monster at first because 
he had been confiding it to her and she has this issue. So um, she tends to take a position of counsel in, in the lives of people around her, even though she is so sick and um, just riddled with addiction and mental illness and all of these things. And you know, that gets worse if you imagine 30 some years on opiates, Right, you're, you're kind of fried from it. So she, he was confiding her and she was his secret keeper and his counsel. And so when I, when it presented to me, which was pretty quick, he had her call me and tell me it was out of control. And I was just irate with her because it didn't take much for me to be irate with her. And all of the manipulation that I'd been wrestling with, with her, that was pretty much it at first. And then it was total panic. You know, what am I going to do? This is a kid, you know, he's barely 18 years old. You know, um, we, we've got to do something immediately. Your first thought is death. Oh my goodness. He's going to die or end up in prison. Worst case scenario. You know, that'll sit you up straight in bed at night, walking the floors at night. Oh my goodness, he's going to die or I'm going to be visiting him in prison and all these terrible things are going to happen. So for me, the anger at my mom and a lot of it being residual and, you know, fair, in all fairness, she's pretty deceptive and that's outrageous for somebody in her position. So it is, you know, understandable that I would feel belligerent toward her. But then the fear, I mean, as I imagine you experienced, you are racked with terror, yeah. What can they be doing? What are they around? What kind of people are they exposed to? What are they doing for these things? And because they eventually the prescription runs out and they have to get them some other way to be around some other type of people. It's not going to be a pharmacy. So I'm, I immediately went into just total panic night and day surging with panic that makes you so crazy. Nothing else matters. I couldn't really concentrate on work or anybody else or relationships or even something being funny on television was kind of painful because it's just sheer, it's primal fear. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've told you my story, but the, um, you know, how, how I learned about uh, that my son had an addiction. I always knew he was, he was, um, I always knew he, one, he, I knew he was smoking pot. I, there was no doubt in my mind. I knew he was drinking, um, but my son started a lot later than yours. Uh, yours did. Uh, my son was 26 when he became addicted to opiates. Okay. Um, and had he had gone? You said he experimented before that. He not with opiates, no. With, but yes, with pot and drinking, and I'm sure that he was doing other things. Um, you know, maybe not consistently, but definitely doing other things. Um, and, and actually how he got involved in it, um, was he was dating a girl and he kept, he, she was an, uh, heroin addict and known heroin addict in the town. And, um, he hid that from us that he was dating her at the time. And, um, he kept saying, uh, uh, previous to that, he kept, because he knew we weren't happy that he would see her, but he had, he had alluded to the fact that he was trying to save her. He, he, he wanted to save her, which, you know, put a, put a pit in my stomach because it's like, you can't even save yourself. You know, how are you going to save her? And, uh, she ended up breaking up with him and he ended up trying heroin, uh, I believe to get her back. And that, that was, and that was the start of it. Um, and actually the story goes, and I believe him because there's no reason for him to lie at this point about it, but, um, he was doing it for a couple of months. 
um, and then he overdosed. And I had no, I, I genuinely had no idea that he was using heroin um, before that time. And um, we almost lost him. It, it really was, a, he, he, it's, it's a miracle that he survived. Um, he was in the hospital, and, right? I'm sorry? He was in the hospital. Oh right? yeah, he was in the hospital for four days. He was on a respirator, wow. and uh, yeah, they he was he was alert um, when they first brought him in. They gave him four doses of Narcan, and he was alert for about four hours. And um, they were getting ready to actually release him from the hospital, and just just before they were releasing him, his lips started turning blue and. Um, he started like falling asleep and, and we couldn't wake him up. And no, uh, I don't think I've heard that that's possible. So, I mean, yeah. before, so does, does what causes that later reaction? Well, <clears throat> what happened was the Narcan wore off. Oh, okay. And, but in the meantime, his, even though the Narcan had worn off, his, um, his bodily function, like his kidneys, his liver, he went into heart failure. Everything was failing. His lungs, they had originally um, done a, an x-ray of his lungs and they said, ah, there was some whiteout. But at four hours later, when they did it again, he had total whiteout and they had to put him on a respirator. Um, And then they brought him up to ICU. They came out at least four times telling me that he wasn't going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, to me, I was already talk about terror. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why, and I think I do suffer from PTSD because I still, you know, um, I can't control. I tried really hard when it first happened for like the first six months. Actually, I went a good year of trying to um, find ways to calm myself down and to, um, to make my obsessive thoughts go away. And, uh, but I found at the end of a year, I couldn't, um, I couldn't stop dreaming and having nightmares about it. And that's when I went and I got myself, um, some help and I went on in, uh, Celexa actually, uh, and they diagnosed me with PTSD. Right. And so is that an antidepressant? It is an anti-anxiety. I think both, um, And and it did, and it did help me. It helped me a tremendous amount. Um, but yeah, that, that, and that still affects me when you talk about that raw terror, you know, I know that, you know, every time he went out, every time, um, you know, he was in treatment for a while, he got kicked out of a sober house at one point. And, um, I didn't know where he was and yep, I had that, that awful, awful up all night because I, I don't know, is he going to die? Is he going to live? Will I talk to him tomorrow? You know, um, that kind of, I know what you're talking about. Right. Raw, raw terror. <laughs> it is. And it, it makes you, it, it makes you feel like you're on the verge of a stroke. At least it did me. Yeah. It was, it was level 10 stress and adrenaline every day. Yep. Yep. And then things will trigger you back to it later. Like I always tell people when, once, you know, he's doing so well now and his life is thriving. It's not utopia. I can get triggered right back to it. I relapse right back into it. Yeah. I myself frantic and worrying and worst case scenario. And 
um, oh my gosh, this must mean that, and that must mean this, and then we're going to end up here, and he's going to he's going to die or get do something criminal, and it it sends you right back into that yeah yeah PSD, but but you do come out of it, and you do make peace with it, and you do end up being more more mindful. At least I, I'm able to think. Okay, today's a good day. The, the analogy is always I can't run beside every car he's in to make sure he doesn't get into a car accident. Yeah, I might try. Right. <laughs> and, and, you, know, you know how when they're learning to drive at 16 and you hear an ambulance and it's the first thought, and, but you can't prevent that. I can't prevent a cancer diagnosis. Right. I can't prevent, there's nothing I can do to prevent any other type of sudden shocking death. You know, as right. much as I can, I cannot hover over him and make sure he doesn't have some drug related death or crime. I just right. I can't do it. And I'm, it's not doing any good. And sometimes I'm getting in the way of life lessons that are going to lead him to a, um, to a better place and to maybe safety and recovery. I'd had right. somebody tell me the other day that they'd had a family member that was involved with um, an, an, an addicted person and they were just so frustrated and they don't want her bringing him around and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, what's your biggest fear? Well, if she continues to see him, she's going to end up on the wrong path. And so well, all you can do is love her because maybe she'll end up on the right path to something wonderful. You don't know what you're standing in the way of. Even right, though it's right. terrifying, good can come from it. And if you try to be the higher power, you know, you learn quick, you're not the higher power. But if right. you try to be that, you're, you're probably standing in the way of some things that may need to happen. You know, right. I don't want my son to die or end up in prison, but a lot of suffering in my life has produced some good things. You know, as much as my background produced a lot of failure and I would allow unfair treatment and I, and it caused me to become severely codependent to people because you blame yourself for everything. Mm-hmm. It also that suffering taught me to be independent and wise and trust my gut and not second guess myself and go for goals and things like that. Suffering sometimes you've got to get out of the way of it and let it happen. Well, I, I think not for nothing, but I think our back our backgrounds in our childhood is proof of that, right? It, right. It's proof of it's a it's you can you can get swallowed up by it, you can get lost in it, and you can do you can actually be a victim of it, or you can grab yourself, pull yourself together, and do everything in your power to try and make it a better situation for yourself. Doesn't mean that you don't um, slip back or you don't, but it does mean that you have to practice, practice, practice. Uh, You know, you have to- trial and error. Right, and you have to work at it, um, you know, and and, um, I think we're, we're both proof of that. You know, we're both proof of, you're right, we're living with this every day. And I've, I've said this to you, I think, in the past. It's always there. You know, my son's in recovery right now, but it's always there. You never lose the sense of it. It's always there, even if you get better at handling it. Nobody really wants to become an expert at handling pathology, dysfunction, or issues that come with addiction. Because it brings a lot of crisis, chaos, madness, ugliness, you know, just the, the nonstop stress that it brings. Nobody ever right. wants to get good at dealing with that stuff, but you get better at it and, and good things can come from it. One good thing that's come from this epidemic, if anything can be said is good, is that families are now pursuing therapy and recovery and facing issues because it forces you to. At least right. if you want to get better and not stay miserable with it. I don't want to be tied to the madness. Right. And, and, you know, I do have to say that in my life, um, 
there are some really amazing positive things that have happened because of this. I have met some of the most incredible people in my life. Um, I have had the strength to actually cut certain people out of my life. Yeah, that's important too. Right. People that were incredibly toxic in my life. And um, I'm just trying to think of all this, you know, I have a greater appreciation of the people that I do love. You know, my husband, I have two incredibly beautiful daughters and you know what? I am really lucky because my son did survive and I have him for as long as I've had him. Um, and it makes and, holidays better. It makes vacations better. Right, it does. You're and, grateful for what you have. Right. And, and um, it's kind of, although I, you know, I used to be a math teacher um, and I loved my job. I loved teaching. I loved being in the classroom and I love my subject. Um, <clears throat> but it's kind of, it's led me now to pursue um, social work and I'm really enjoying it. Wow. So, so really positive, positive, strong things that have come out of this, you know, difficult well, situation. I agree. Um, I started, my the teacher that kind of took me under her wing when I was little and gave extra um, encouragement to me. Um, I reconnected with her because as a result of my son's recovery, I started writing articles and then it led to the book being published, traditionally published, which is hard. And I would have never went for it if I wouldn't have gone through that crisis. And it wouldn't have purged... I had some toxic situations in my life as well, where I allowed myself to be kind of trampled on or treated like second best. And I would co-sign that. I would just, oh, uh, it must be my fault. Oh, I must, I, I deserve to be talked to like this. I deserve to be snapped at and apologize to you that, you know, you, you get in those situations where you're kind of a constant doormat. And, and the ebb and flow of that is misery for so many years. And I think yeah. recovery leads you to recognize your worth. Yeah, that's what it's done for me. Recovery has not only brought me to a place of of insight as far as information and serenity and letting it go, but it's also taught me a lot about my worth in the midst of it. And that that affects every area. That's not just my relationship with my son and detaching from all of that. I don't have to triage his problems and pressures. It's also taught me what I don't have to put up with, accept or allow in every area. You know, you know, the other thing it did for me um, it- this is going to sound crazy, but it gave me the chance to reflect on me and who I am as a person. I I know it sounds, it sounds crazy, but it's like, um, this, uh, how do I say this through, through reflect, reflecting on who I am and what I want in my life. And, um, and uh, what I'm actually capable of really helped me to gain this piece of serenity um, and uh, uh, how do I say this? It just really helped me to, um, to come to peace in my life. And I'm actually, I'm a calmer person. Like I, I'm, I'm calmer, I'm I feel stronger and more confident uh, with the decisions that I make. And I'm more forgiving of myself when I do make mistakes. Yeah, it's kind of like that. The concept of crisis will show you what you're made of. It'll show you what everyone else is made of as well. Yeah. I I think we talked about how 
some friends that you expect to support you or show up for you or that you thought you were really close to go silent or they just give you because they don't understand they give you advice that is casual and casual advice when you are hemorrhaging with almost adds weight and pain to it so um I forget my train of thought where I was going with that yeah well I agree with you on that you know that that you're right that when you're hemorrhaging and people start giving you advice and they have no idea it it right. it actually it actually makes things worse i think it it can make things so much more confusing it can rack you and with shameful. guilt it can be shameful too because yeah. it, sometimes like well why don't you just do this or that or yeah. just let him go and and had somebody that you know it was actually licensed in therapy and always kind of a cheerleader for me say this is getting so bad it's only going to end in prison or death and I just thought, well, I guess we're just losers and I have to just accept this. Yeah, right. And there's like the fighter in me that doesn't put up with that. Something resident just kind of thought, you know what? No, I'm not accepting that. It's not happening today. It hasn't happened yet. I'm going to believe the opposite will happen. And right. I started saying this mantra to myself, this will end and it will end well and it will end soon and it will not be the worst right. scenario outcome. Right. This is awful. And just like you, you kind of see things and people that are not, always what you expect in a, in a good way, it, it brings people forward that you didn't expect kindness and understanding from. Sometimes I ended up bonding with a girl at work that I hadn't been so close to. And for four years through it, she was just a godsend. She could tell by the look on my face and I wouldn't want to unload it to her, but something had been fresh that morning, whether sometimes I would follow him to somebody's house in a bad neighborhood and knock on the door after he left and say, I'm going to have, you know, the media here and all this crazy stuff. And then I'd have to go to work and face clients and she'd just see it on me. I'd be bound up with it. And she had never experienced anything like that. Her kids were toddlers and she would say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to get through this day. And I had four years to lean on her like that. I would have never pictured her to be a sympathetic, understanding person, at least not being somebody that gets close to people easily. I didn't expect her to come alongside me with that. I thought it would have been, you know, some, another number of other people that were along for the ride. It brings yeah. out the unexpected in everybody. You know, you know, it's interesting you say that. And, and just like hearing you talk, uh, talk about that, that is one thing that I think I've been missing out in um, on my journey that I really don't have. I don't have even that one person. Um, I do attend support groups, um, but I find that those support, those support groups all all of the people that um, I've become involved with, they always want to guide me in their way. It, does that make sense? You, you know, they want me to do things the way that they that they did it or that they, it, right? And so I don't, I really haven't had um, someone that I can confide in, someone that, um, or, or let me, let me just say it this way too, like there might be someone who wants to be supportive and who is willing to listen to me, but then they'll always try and tell me how, what I should do or how I should do it. But I don't want to, I don't want to have a discussion like that. I don't want to justify why I'm doing things the way I'm doing it. Or, right. uh, And it's like, right. I don't need this right now. So I don't have, I honestly, I don't have that. I don't, it's, I feel a lot of the time, I personally feel like everything's on my shoulders. I've got to, I've got to figure out everything and you'll see, I'll do things like I'll kind of disappear and go off on my own. And 
and just mull things over until I figure it out for myself. And then I come back in, I'll, you know, kind of join the picture again. But I, one thing that I can tell you, um, one thing that I can tell you that I've gotten from all of this, and that is, is that I know that no matter what happens, that even if the absolute worst thing happens, ultimately in the end, I'm going to be okay. Right. I know I am. And you're among friends now, and this will all develop. Yes. Again. You don't have to do it alone. I think sometimes that's, um, that is also a choice because you have had those experiences that you kind of bump into this and that, and it makes you retreat back into yourself. And when you're independent and strong like that, I mean, that's kind of your knee-jerk reaction. It is. So yeah. um, that support is everything. So that is what I believe this podcast is going to give others. And some of our, I think, great ideas for upcoming topics will be um, family history, stuff like that. Daily forgiving, how to take care of ourselves. I have a good question that I think we'll we'll, um, maybe discuss in future podcasts. What are your take? What is your, and we'll save answers for. Okay. On a sober environment when your addicted child is visiting or living with you. You have wine in the home, do you not? Do you go out and have a beer for um, a ball game with friends or do you not? What's your yep. position? What was your experience and choices? And what's your opinion? So I think all of these things will be great areas to cover because there are a lot of people addicted, but for every person addicted, there's probably 15 to 20 people affected by their addiction. And that's who we're kind of trying to reach. You know, yep. I know when my son was out running in his addiction, he wasn't reading books about addicts overcoming or the experience of the family. So I hope that we're going to reach a large audience to hear, this is what we did that worked wonderfully. This is what helped, yep. this is what brought relief. This is what was crazy and absolutely did not work. You know, things like that. I think this open discussion is going to be a wonderful place for people to come and listen. Yep, I agree. I agree. And I'm glad, I'm glad we got started and I'm glad that um, we were able to, uh, or that people might want to listen to our stories. Yeah, I look forward to getting to know you even more as we go. Sounds good. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up For Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, Net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.